A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. What would be your last meal? Jeez. Wow. Hmm. Uh, pizza. What is? <laughs> I love how you said that like a revelation. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of what I imagine Blondie eating. Like, let's go get a slice. Like, in between, like, writing cool songs. Let's get a slice. Like, that's, that's it. That's actually perfect. I don't, that, that's it. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to the premiere of Mini Questions Season 2. I'm so glad you're here. And if you're new to this show, let me fill you in. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters? with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines. So I started this podcast because I wanted to put together a kind of cultural anthology where I invite you to explore the questions I think we've all been asking ourselves lately. How are we similar? How are we individual? Which commonalities surprise us and why? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are... When and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? 
What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. And I'm starting season two with legendary lead singer of the band Blondie, Debbie Harry. We don't usually use one of the seven questions as the episode opening, but because Debbie is such a rule breaker, I figured it was only right to break a rule in her episode. I've always felt like Blondie and the Ramones and the New York Dolls were this super creative scream in the face of corporate rock. And Debbie herself has always felt to me to be part of the vanguard of cultural engagement. She is a reflective soul and a straight shooter of the best New Jersey variety. And as usual, it was a privilege to have spoken with a person who has helped shape the cultural conversation so specifically. So the first question is, where and when were you happiest? (sighs) Well, I think that I was happiest in the early days of Blondie. I probably didn't really know how happy I was but I was very happy. It was a brave new world and I was struggling, you know, climbing and and learning and working and it was quite wonderful. And the reason I know this is because when they flew the planes into the Twin Towers, I went through the series of anger, of grief, of this and of that. And one day I was just sort of laying there on the couch and I thought, oh my God, I wish it was the seventies again. And this tremendous feeling came over me about how that was a great, wonderful time for me. So I look at that as being happy. Do you think it's because you guys were part of that vanguard of that New York scene, that whole music movement that happened? Were you aware of just being at the forefront of something and creating it? Or were you just too busy being in that whole music scene and the club scene that Mm. you didn't realize that you were at the forefront? Oh, I don't think we thought of ourselves as being at the forefront. You know, it was a very creative period for us. And we were daredevils. And, you know, we thought that we were daredevils. I don't know. The scene was uh, very energetic. And there was really nothing of value. None of us had record deals or anything like that. We're all scrambling and scuttling around like, you know, little vermin. But... You know, it was very creative. So we fed off each other's creativity and it was, you know, this sort of one-upsmanship as much as, you know, we could figure out how to do. And it was a spirited, I guess, is the best way. You know how people do in music today? There are so many collaborations. Like you'll have all these people doing guest vocals on other people's tracks. Was there a lot of collaboration that like we didn't necessarily get to hear that wasn't necessarily recorded? Like, do you remember playing and writing or recording with other people that but it was never really for public consumption? The time that I was thinking, I was really kind of before we did any recording, serious recording. I mean, later on, I sang on something of the Ramones. I think I'm, I'm probably <laughs> the only the only female to sing on a Ramones record. Then I did something with Dee Dee when Dee Dee did his rap invasion. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I am definitely going to listen to that tonight. <laughs> yeah, Dee Dee King. Dee Dee King. 
So there was some of that, but that, that sort of came around later. But I think in the early days, people were just maybe swapping back and forth musicians more than performing officially. Um, you know, like for a while, television's current bass player, Fred Smith, was my bass player, you know, and then Richard Hell broke off and formed the Voidoids and Walter Lohr was playing with the Voidoids or when he was playing with Johnny Thunders, you know, there was sort of this period of time when people were establishing who they were. So I think that that is sort of an era that nobody really knows about that much. You know, it was never officially recorded. Maybe it was risque or something. I don't know. <laughs> so do you think that it was freedom from any kind of pressure that you were just creating in a vacuum outside of like a record label expectation or numbers or money or anything that that was really sort of unadulterated happiness for you is sort of unencumbered creativity? Yeah. I mean, we all had the goals and high aspirations of playing for thousands and thousands in arenas. And of course, you know, anybody who joins a rock band has that dream, you know, that that's really where they all want to go. Very few want to just stay in the clubs. I've always felt that was the underpinnings of it all. So what relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? My relationship with Chris um, is definitely a big, big love in my life. Chris Stein, the guitarist in Blondie. Yeah, yeah. It's gone through so many different stages and different kinds of love. So I would say that, you know, since I've had intimacy with him and a working relationship and a great friendship for all these years, uh, I think he's the only person in my life that I can honestly say that about. Well, that you basically went through the scope of a whole relationship with one person. It is kind of amazing. It's hard to be friends with ex-lovers. You have to work on it, you know, it's work. And I mean, having a great love relationship is work and sacrifice and uh, being flexible. And that's really what happens, isn't it? Did all of the different permutations of love, did that always feed the kind of creative cabal that you guys had, even if you guys were not getting along? Did it always somehow feed the creativity? Well, we always had a very easy communication with one another. I always knew what he was saying. I always understood him. He, of course, is capable of understanding anything. I mean, he's a really, really smart person. So I think that, as you know, in acting, it's about listening and, and hearing. We could hear each other. That was a big part of it. From the very beginning. Like, how old were you when you met him? Oh, I was old. I was 27. <laughs> I was 27. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love 27. I loved 27. Wow, you were 27 when you met him. And like right from the offset, was it immediate? Like not just like immediately falling in love, but an immediate recognition that this person was, was kind of it. No, we were sort of friends before we got intimate. And we met through music. He came to one of my very early shows. And then within the next two weeks, he replaced one of our backing musicians. And then, you know, we worked together uh, in that format for a while. And then we went off on our own because we wanted to do something that was less cabaret and more rock. That was that. 
I love it. And that was that. Like it's sort of an <laughs> iconic relationship. And that was that. Like Parallel Lines was the first record I ever bought with my own money when I was nine years old. And the fact that your friendship has lasted through the whole course of my life, like that makes me feel that makes me feel good about the world. Well, thank you. That's very nice. That's very generous. Well, it's really true. There's only one record that you buy first. Like it stays in your brain and your heart. I'm so old that it's, it was a, a 45. It was a single. What was it? Uh, Fats Domino, I think Blueberry Hill or something like that. But I used to buy 45s as well. Yeah, 45s were fun. An LP, like you had to save up for an LP. Right. In England, that's what an album was called. Uh-huh, an LP. Yeah. Yeah. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. 
When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. What quality do you like least about yourself? Oh, well, I've been working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I have. It's funny you should ask that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think I used to, if I was backed up against the wall or something and I felt threatened or paranoid or afraid, I would react with anger. And it was an inappropriate reaction. And so I try not to do that anymore. I'm very, very aware of it. And I, I guess I've become too much of an adult. But I mean, I do have moments of terrible temper, but <laughs> not, so, not so unreasonable as it once was. Would it be an emotional situation, like of somebody backing you into a corner, like as opposed to literally, that's what would elicit anger? Hmm. Yes, sometimes. And I guess, you know, anger and fear, you can respond to that in so many ways, so many different ways, you know, that it does inhibit you. I think that's really what upsets me about it is that it closes me down and I'd rather not be closed down. Hmm. Yeah, that is the thing that comes with having lived a little bit. It's going, the reaction that feels good in the moment, actually, its long-term effect is so much worse for you, me, us. Yeah. Yeah. So what person, place or experience most altered your life? Well, immediately I think of something as a small child, but I, I think that's, that's a fantasy, you know? I don't think there is one thing. It's always like a chain of events for me. I first started as a backup singer in the 60s with a friend from high school's husband, and I sort of got bitten. I was terribly shy and was very happy to be a backup singer and marveled at people like Janis Joplin and Grace Slick. And, you know, I was just, oh, my God, how can they do it? How do they do it? But then, you know, I was disappointed. You're learning about human nature all the time, and I was such an idealist you know, kind of dummy. And <laughs> so I sort of had a taste of business in the arts and I didn't like it. Didn't like it. And so I left it and I did other things for a while, but I felt like I was haunted because I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. So then do you remember the moment that you really decided to come back and focus on music for yourself? I approached someone who I knew not very well, but I knew they were on the scene. I was a follower of the New York Dolls at the time, and I was living in New Jersey 
I was helping my mother, who was seriously ill. You know, I was hanging around going to these shows uh, at the Mercer Arts Center, and I loved the dolls and everything, you know, that they represented. And, and many of the people who would go to those shows, you know, I sort of built up a friendship with. So I ran into one of those people, and I said to her, oh, what, what's going on? What are you up to? And she said, oh, I have a band. And I said, oh, great. What's it called? She said, pure garbage. <laughs> and I said, oh, great name. Really, great, really great name. She said, oh, and Holly Woodlawn's in it. And I said, oh, God, that must be so much fun. And so uh, I said, let me know. Give me your number. Let me know the next time you do a show. So I never heard from her. And I called her finally and said, well, when is the show? She said, oh, we broke up. <laughs> I said, oh, well, let's form a band of our own, you and me. No way. Yeah. What was the name of that band? The Stilettos. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah. That's a really good name. Wow. Do you still have that music? I do, actually. Somebody found a recording recently, and they're actually going to do something with it. I was amazed. It's not the greatest fidelity or, you know, quality, but it's live. It's good. You know, it's like, it has that quality. Oh my God. So was it recorded live in a venue or in a studio? It had to be a venue. I don't remember being in a studio, but I couldn't swear to anything. <laughs> don't ask me to swear to anything. <laughs> don't ask me to swear to anything. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, I, God, I'd love to hear that. That's amazing. Well, I remember the songs that you wrote and where you're playing guitar, I guess. Yeah. You were really sincere and saying stuff, you know, you were saying things and you were feeling things. It was obvious. I honestly think that's pretty much all there is to feel stuff. And if you're a creative person and you make things, you put that into what you do and it's never going to be for everybody. But I've always felt like that was my job was to do that and, you know, take the embarrassment if it doesn't work out, but never really let that stop you. Right. And that's, that's key, that word, embarrassment. Yeah. That's a very big part of what holds people back. You get embarrassed, so what? Yeah. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. So what question would you most like answered? Oh, God. I think that, you know, as a performer, that I'm always learning. I'm always learning. It must be the same for you. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I'm astonished at how much there is to keep on learning. I have a 13-year-old son, and we have this similar experience. He plays the piano, and he kind of writes music, and I did when I was really young. And I remember sobbing to my mother and he, my son didn't come sobbing to me, but he was really glum one day. And I was like, what's up? And he was like, I just, you know, I was just playing the piano and I was just like writing a song. I just, I just figured like by the time I've grown up, like there's going to be no music left to write. Oh. <laughs> I was like, dude, I had the same thought and I wept about it. Like all the songs are going to get written. And I said, I got to tell you, like, if anything, they become more songs to write. Like there's more to learn and there's more to do. The older I've gotten, I can't believe how much I missed when I was younger. I can't believe how much I thought I knew everything. Mm, Very true. When you guys were writing songs, was it an organic process of you'd sit down to write a record or 
did all these songs kind of come out of different situations for all of you? Like, how was that process when you guys would write? Just what you said, you know, out of experience and out of, you know, situations and some grain of truth or absurdity, you know, would strike you. And I was always making snippets, you know, little, little jots of things. And I still do that, you know, little ideas, notes to myself. And then I will organize them and come up with some music. Or, you know, when we start working together as a band and in sessions, you know, and trying to create new material. But it works in all different ways for me. I'm sure it does for you. Yeah, I think it's just about paying attention, whether it's a phrase of music or whether it's a line or whether it's something someone says or something that you see. I think recording it is the most important thing. Like, I think it's the only thing I like about my phone is that I can record a voice note kind of wherever I am. Yeah. It becomes some weird collage journal. Uh huh. Did you contribute to your collage today? Yeah, you know what? I did. I did. Good. I wrote a book and I worked not just on the writing of it, but the design of like what the book cover is going to look like and what that means. And today I was, I was sort of looking at it and going, it got, is anything ever really done? Like <laughs> I could carry on writing this book literally for fucking ever. I could carry on tinkering with the font and the color and the picture. It doesn't ever really end. Did you feel that way about? records that like, it's like, okay, I guess we should stop, but you could actually carry on forever if left to your own devices. Yes. It's a danger zone for sure. Sometimes you just have to back away from the table, drop your fork, (laughs) (laughs) walk away, walk away. Walk away from the desk. I know. Yeah. I know. But I do try and do something every single day to add to the collage. It's good for my mental health, particularly in these days, which is still a little bit more isolated than perhaps they used to be. Do you? Do you try and do something every day? Well. What I do as I I sort of close myself up in the car and driving in my little sound booth on wheels, I'm very careful not to, you know, because you're not supposed to use your phone, you know, when you're driving, but I have to make notes. So it's always sort of sitting there on my thigh, you know, I'm always pushing the button, you know, something (laughs) that happens to me a lot. I guess when I'm out with people, if I'm at a show or something, that's sometimes very surprising that you'd be in the midst of all this sort of, you know, noise and mayhem and and something will, you know, sort of pop into my head and I'll try to uh, record that or scribble it down somewhere. Is there anyone that you listen to particularly? You know, I am not a listener except when I'm in the car driving and I just cruise and cruise and listen to you know, all different things. I like to see what's on top 10. I like to know what Kiss is playing. I like to listen to grunge. I like to listen to rap. I I mean, you wouldn't think that I'm a person who would really love Rage Against the Machine, but I do. (laughs) I'm actually incredibly glad to know that, that you love Rage Against the Machine. I'm really interested in what people, particularly musicians, like what they listen to. I like all kinds of music. Oddly enough, I have to admit it, when I'm in the house, I don't have music on. I am not the person who puts music on in the background. That's the only time that I'm sort of pinned down is when I'm in the car. So that's my, that's my listening room. And uh, I love it. I like that. So in your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster? I think in terms of the industry, we all go through these rude awakenings, shall we say, and learning experiences that really, you know, shape our sense of worth 
and our sense of reality and in actual fact that made me have to plant myself down and say, regardless of this, I will persevere. I've always felt it's really good to have to push up against something. Yeah, I felt that way too from the very beginning because, you know, having to demand a reaction from an audience is really, really important and just makes you work harder. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Insisting. It's funny, insisting. A lot of women, we're not raised to insist on people's attention. We're actually taught that it's a very bad thing for a woman to insist on people's attention, I think. Yeah. Act like a lady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, what? <laughs> exactly. What kind of lady are you looking for? <laughs> it's tricky because you're such an influential woman at that moment in time. Like, did you feel at a disadvantage being a woman in the industry? I've always felt that it was an idea whose time had come. And I felt that way also about the gay scene, you know, that the time had come for this to change. And I felt that way about women in rock or whatever you want to call it. You say that there were situations where you kind of have to find your self-worth and that you were pushing up against. Was that like within the industry? Yeah, there was really very little else to go. You know, there was nowhere else to go with it because it was always predicated on the next new thing. I think that the boys had really used up. They'd used up there a lot of time. Well, I think they had explored a lot. I mean, there were always great stars who did exploration like David Bowie and you know, people like that. And there are still, as part of the survival of the industry, really, is that it's, it's the newest, it's the newest, it's the greatest, it's the latest, it's something fresh. And, and that can be problematic that, you know, it's like you get this uh, sort of five-year plan of possibility. It's the same in Hollywood. It's always like the youngest and the freshest and the newest. Right. It becomes so myopic because it's just about that particular industry as opposed to being an artist in general and that constantly evolving. I think it's always hard to be a young artist, but it's really about seeing it as a marathon, I guess, and not a sprint, not just a five-year, but a 50-year. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that Chris and I always talked about, actually, that many of the artists that we admired, of course, were middle-aged. And at the time, you know, we were in our 20s. And also, you know, the fact that the great blues artists and the great jazz artists were fully developed and, you know, had been playing for a long time. And it wasn't looked down upon that they weren't in their 20s. But you're right. In Hollywood, it's fierce because it's so built on the fresh, youthful ingenue or whatever, young heartthrob. Yep. Yeah, it's all about merchandising and the mercantile part of of what we do. I think that the youth aspect is like it's an industry of its own. You have to really emancipate yourself unless you're going to go and just sort of sequester yourself for the rest of your life after you're not super young anymore, which is obviously what Hollywood would quite like a lot of women to do. But Really? Those bastards. And I was just thinking of moving out there. (laughs) I was just, damn. I was just thinking of of loving, of loving Hollywood. No, but I mean, it's so weird because it's such a tiny amount of time that you're really super young like that. Yeah. And then you're an evolving artist for much longer. Yeah. It took me a long time to sort of emancipate myself from outside of that. It's hard. Very hard. You said that you were really shy when you were backing singer. How did you shed that shyness? Was it just by doing it? And what made you want to shed the shyness. I wanted to enjoy myself. 
I wanted to really be free and loving music the way that I do and the way that it makes me feel. I wanted to make people see that. One day I did have a revelation, harsh revelation. It was at CBGB's, as a matter of fact. I went on stage and the stage is very small there. It's not like you can, you know, run back and forth and have to do a lot of, you know, this or that. You pretty much have to stay in your spot. I walked out and I realized I was waiting for the audience to give me, give it to me, give it me, give it me. Then I realized that I had to make them. I had to make them. I had to command them. And that was a real revelation. And then shyness sort of said, well, you've had your day because I've got work to do. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty amazing to actually walk out on stage and it gets really real. And this thing that you've had as a mantle in your life is like, oh, I have no further use for this and I need to shed it. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like it's a decision. Something else that I had heard that being shy was a form of ego. And I thought, wow, that's that's really crappy. I didn't like that. Do you think that was true? Well, it just sort of made me just even more convinced that I had no time for it. I really like that you, that you just summoned all your impatience with something that was bugging you about your character and just left it by the wayside. Well, theoretically I did. I don't know if I did completely all at once, but I got the message. Many people ask me, how do you not have stage fright? I said, well, I have a job to do. And I, when I, before I go on stage, if I'm too excited or, or too nervous, I just say, okay, you know, concentrate on, on your job and the technical aspects of what you have to do. And that's that, you know, just go out there and do your job. I like this. I think you're the, the most practical rock star in the world. Oh, shit. That's horrible. <laughs> That's horrible. Oh, my God. I'm quitting. That's awesome. it. I'm finished. That's awesome. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, what do, what do other rock stars tell you? Well, who else are you talking to, damn it? I don't know. Like <laughs> Dave Grohl. Dave was just so kind of, it all, it all felt way more haphazard. And I really like the idea to be no nonsense with the parts of ourselves that are difficult and going, okay, well, you're feeling really nervous. You're feeling really scared. All right. Well, you've got to go out there and you've got a job to do. So just focus on that and stop thinking about the other stuff. Like it's really, it's kind of good parenting of yourself. I did get some good advice about that, you know, and how to help yourself. Think about envisioning yourself as a small child. And you take your small child hand in your big child hand, say, okay, you're with me. Let's go. And I just, I love it. I like that too. It's very good to parent ourselves. Yes. I mean, you do that for yourself, right? You have a child, but. I've done it more for myself since I did it for my kid. Mm. Parenting him taught me how to be a good parent to myself. More tolerant, kinder. Right. Yeah. Take your own hand. I like that. Yeah. Oh, Debbie, thank you. Thank you with all of my heart. Thank you for coming and talking to me. I just think you're the absolute greatest. Oh, thank you. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel the same way about you. And I keep my eyes out for you. Look, there she is. So thank you. Debbie Harry is a rock icon and her footprint on the industry is deep. I'd recommend, if you can, to get into a car or, as Debbie would say, your sound booth on wheels and blast your favorite Blondie song. And don't forget to add every day to the collage 
of your life. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoy. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.